Welcome to the Nurse Becoming podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Guarneri from the Resume RX, and this is the podcast that's dedicated to empowering and encouraging nurses along your path of professional and self discovery. As a nurse practitioner, mom, and business owner, I'm on a mission to help you figure out how to leave your lasting impact on the world, all while bravely and fearlessly growing along the way. Join me for honest conversations and inspiring stories about personal and professional growth, all through the lens of nursing. Well, hello there. Welcome back to another episode of Nurse Becoming. It's Amanda Guarneri, your host, and so happy to have you here today for, I mean, I think I say this almost every week that it's my favorite episode, but I honestly had so much fun recording this episode for you because it is an NP roundtable episode, and it's with my classmates from NP school who have remained my dearest friends. We graduated 10 years ago. Yikes. We are officially elder NPs, as I'm calling ourselves. But I I asked them, I said, would you be interested in recording an episode with me? And and they were really excited. None of them are podcasters or anything like that. They're just really my closest NP friends. And we talk about a few things in this episode. We we really couldn't get in everything that I was hoping we could talk about. So certainly if this episode is enjoyable to you, let me know by either sharing on Instagram or in the reviews on Apple Podcasts, because I will absolutely bring this group back and do this episode format again if you enjoy it. But we talked a little bit about our individual careers after school and the challenges that we are currently facing and, and kind of how that has all evolved, how our professional goals have evolved, how we're balancing personal life. So I'm really excited for you to uh, hear this episode with my friends, Stephanie, Ellie, and Teresa. We all graduated together from Yale School of Nursing from their master's entry nurse practitioner program. So you'll hear a little bit more about that. I do give some context about the program that we went to and the track that we were in and and everything. So I, I really hope you enjoy this. These are some of my closest friends. I'm so grateful that they uh, spent this time with me. And and after we stopped recording, we were able to catch up and kind of have some social time, which was just the icing on the cake. So I hope you enjoy. Let me know if you do. And without further ado, let's get into the NP roundtable 10 years later. All right. I am here with my classmates, my besties. I am so excited to have them here and introduce them to you. So um, to set the stage for this episode, we are four graduates of the Yale School of Nursing Nurse Practitioner Program. We did a direct entry program, meaning that we all had bachelor's degrees in other fields before we decided to enter NP school. And our program was an accelerated program that granted us an RN certification after a year, and we went directly into the NP program. We all moved to Connecticut for these three intense full-time years from around the country to study. And specifically, we all did the combined adult NP and women's health NP dual certification. So that gives you a little bit of a context of the program that we did. And this was 10 years ago. So we are in our 10th year of practice as NPs, which is kind of wild to think about, but so proud to say that these ladies are still three of my closest friends and definitely my professional confidants. So excited to share them with you, introduce them to you. So we are going to do introductions. So if you would introduce yourself, tell us your name, your pronouns, tell us what your current job is and anything about your story or your journey that you want to kick us off with. And we'll start with Steph. Hi, everyone. Um, My name is Stephanie Bedoya. I'm a pulmonary and sleep nurse practitioner. So despite having been trained and board certified in women's health, I actually never did women's health. I worked initially as a hospitalist. So just kind of going back to the introduction, my um, pronouns are she, her, and in Spanish, ella. And I'm currently living and practicing in Sonoma County, California, which is the Northern Bay Area. Yeah, just really excited to be here. Teresa, you're up. Hi, my name is Teresa. I am like Stephanie, 
working not in women's health. I am working in internal medicine. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I have been at one position since we graduated. I think I might be the only person in the entire graduating class of 110 or so who's at the same practice. Um, it's changed slightly, but, and I live in Western Massachusetts. Um, and I think that's everything that you wanted us to start out with. <laughs> Teresa, I do, I use you as an example. Sometimes I don't use your name or any identifiers, but sometimes I'll say, I have one friend who's still in the same <laughs> job that they were in when they graduated. Um, so I think, I think it's safe to say, and we'll get into this a little bit more, that you are the exception, not the rule when it comes Very to true. NPs after 10 years. So we'll talk more about that. But next, Ellie. Hi, I am Ellie, and she, her pronouns, and I am a nurse practitioner working in Astoria, Queens, so um, very urban environment. I have had four positions since leaving and in the last 10 years, so uh, I, I am astounded, Teresa, that you've only had one position, and I'm so impressed. You're definitely the zebra, like very, very good for you, and yeah, I'm just excited to be here. I also am not working women's health. So I'm doing more urgent kind of urgent care and home visit settings for high, highly vulnerable and chronic medical patients that are more homebound. Thanks, Ellie. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I'm not sure how many of our cohort uh, are actually working in women's health. You know, my first job was in student health. So I was mostly doing adult urgent care, but I would kind of flex over to the GYN side every once in a while. And then when I started working in emergency medicine, interestingly, there's a fair amount of women's health in emergency medicine. But yeah, I never had uh, a straight woman's job either, which is kind of too bad. But at the same time, I think that our program knew that that might be the case, which is why they dual certified in adult and women's health. So I'm I'm grateful, grateful for that. And I have had four full-time positions since we graduated and like two per DM or, or side jobs. Uh, and I'm Amanda. Everyone knows me. <laughs> My pronouns are she and her. And I am not working clinically currently. So I am one of the folks who stepped back due to personal reasons surrounding the pandemic, mostly surrounding childcare. So I have taken this past year as a clinical sabbatical, and I'm not sure when that will end. But right now, my full-time job is professional support through the Resume Rx and this business, which is fun. So, all right. So let's kind of dive into some questions. All of us except Teresa have had multiple jobs since we graduated. So I'd love to start by talking about how we navigated figuring out where our professional happy place was. Like, how much time did you spend in your first position? When did you know it was time to move on? And how many positions did it take for you to figure out where you wanted to be long-term, if it was even a decision like that? Yeah, so I took an interesting path. My first job out of school was as a hospitalist, which I refer to a lot of times as boot camp. It was really intense, and I learned a lot. And I had such a great team. The docs I worked with were all awesome. Also, just a very young, um, supportive group. Our organization. So it was a small practice initially, and we were working out of two hospitals. And then we started moving into long-term care um, as a hospitalist. And I remember being on call for like eight different sites at times, and that was kind of a lot. <laughs> so the job kind of turned into something that I didn't expect. And so when I started seeing that I was getting more shifts at like a long-term acute care facility or um, nursing homes, I would have to like travel between two nursing homes sometimes, um, which, you know, is pretty common among folks who have to do that, but it just really wasn't for me. Um, and that's when I started thinking about just a, a job change. Um, I was also on the East Coast and I'm from California. So that really played a role as well, just that I wanted to go back to the West Coast. So I had a strong interest in pulmonology. And that was something that was cultivated during my years as a hospitalist. And that was like in school, I hadn't had no exposure really to the specialty. And so having gone through hospitalist work and seeing just really everything and 
realizing that I loved pulmonology is kind of what moved me towards that specialty. And um, there's a position that opened up in Portland, Oregon, and I took it. And then Steph, when you moved to California, you stayed within. I did. Yes. So I actually even specialized further when I moved down to um, California. So I, I did a year in allergy and asthma. And that was like super focused It literally was only maybe a handful of diagnoses that I would manage. And so I missed kind of the broader specialty of pulmonology. I also felt like I was missing out a little bit on internal medicine. So I did some after hours shifts just to stay current and not forget things because just like anything else, if you don't, if you're not practicing just sort of as a generalist, you start to lose your, yeah, like you just, you just forget. And so um, I did that. And concurrently, there was a job open in pulmonology and sleep medicine. There's actually a lot of jobs for nurse practitioners and particularly sleep medicine. So that's just a plug (laughs) for those who may be interested. And it was within the same organization. So I was able to do both until I just switched completely over back to pulmonology sleep. Nice. And I I think a good thing to point out about your story is that you started off very much as a generalist, which was what helped you figure out kind of what direction you wanted to go in from a specialty perspective. I hear a lot of questions from NP students or newer NPs, you know, is it okay to specialize right away? And I, I personally think that that's fine, but not everybody knows because we don't get exposed to a lot of these subspecialties in school. So having an opportunity to be more of a generalist and and practice within, you know, the scope of internal medicine or or primary care and then see what you what you like is a really nice way of doing things. So Ellie, I would love to hear more about the positions that you've held, kind of how your first job was, what was your reason for leaving the first job and then you know, what happened up until now from then? Yeah, my first job was decided for me because I used the United States Public Health Service to assist for paying for school. So it, that program, if anyone's interested, it's called the Senior Co-Staff Program. You um, are a uniformed service member, and that means that you take whatever position the uniformed service gives you. <laughs> and my position happened to be in a men's prison, you have to give them a certain amount of time back after graduation. So um, I, you know, graduated in women's health, had the dual certification as an adult NP, and then was placed in a men's prison for 18 months where I didn't see a single woman besides the women I worked with. And by the way, I would go six weeks without seeing a woman that I worked with either because in the Department of Corrections, you don't actually interact with that many women ever at all. So you don't have a choice about leaving. It's not a job you can leave. You have 18 months of a contract and you just have to stick it out. Otherwise, you pretty much have to sell your kidney to the government. Like it's not something you can back away from. So that being said, it was a great position. And I still have veteran benefits from that position that I'm very thankful for. But those 18 months, as any new job is with the first year, it's a lot of learning. I had even worked in uh, a different during clinical rotations, seeing what corrections was like. Actually, Teresa and I both had the same rotation through a different corrections facility. And I thought I was prepared. You know, you get prepared as you go sometimes. And so I left 18 months to the day. Like the moment I could leave that position, I left that position. And I didn't leave for a specific position, but I knew I was going to be living in New York City. So I took a month to re- gain my confidence as a human and interviewed and found a position that really worked for me that I stayed in for five years. And that was in the South Bronx in uh, a federally qualified community health center. So lots of really great experience. I ended up doing more specialization in HIV, hepatitis C, and uh, methadone treatment facilities, but also with it was transitioning more to Suboxone at that time. So I did a lot of that management. And then after five years of that, I decided to move to a different position in a bigger hospital system. I only stayed there for six months because it was essentially, I got there, saw that it wasn't what was really guaranteed or I had talked about with the person who hired me and left as soon as I got my six month retention bonus. <laughs> And move to the position I'm at now, which I'm very, very happy with. And I've been there two years now. Awesome. So I think that's that's a good point too. Like 
sometimes we end up in jobs that despite our best efforts and despite our best research and despite us being experienced, don't end up being the right opportunity. And I think, you know, your perspective is interesting because your first job, you knew early on that it wasn't something that you wanted to stay in, but you were like more than contractually obligated to stay. Do you still have lessons learned? Like, can you still reflect back on that with gratitude for the experience? And if so, like, what was your big lesson or takeaway from that first job? I definitely look back with gratitude for the experience for going, essentially exiting my school and having a job lined up immediately in that first 18 months. And something I would say for anyone that has a new job or is just starting out, you never know what you're learning that's going to be helpful in the future. So there's a lot of stuff that I did that was, I was like, this is such grudge work. <laughs> I, don't, I can't believe that I'm doing X, Y, and Z right now. This is kind of not below me, but it, it was just not, it wasn't what I wanted to be doing because I wanted to be a women's health MP and here I was in men's prison. But some of the things that I learned, because I had to manage, I helped manage hepatitis C populations in a prison environment. So I learned ribavirin. And by the time I got out, hep C medications were all kind of still using ribavirin and everyone else was scared to use ribavirin. And I was fluent to that medication or psychiatric medications. That was another one that was like, this isn't really my deal. But when you see what opportunities there are, you will be able to say, oh, actually, I do know that. And that's kind of a empowering thing. So as you're in your first year, when you're just learning so much, you never know what you're going to be utilizing in the future that you've learned from that first experience. And I think that's something that maybe I rolled my eyes at the beginning, but then I learned that everything is about learning and everything can be turned into an opportunity in the future for those specializations you might want to move into. Yeah, totally. I was I was so grateful for my first position in student health, even though I left it after a year. I had my collaborating physician on days that were slow. He was a retired or a former ER doc. So he would take me into the procedure room and, you know, tell me to buy a pack of pig's feet or a pack of chicken breasts and just like teach me how to suture and do procedures in our downtime. And and I ultimately ended up working in the emergency department and having that foundation was really helpful because that was not something that we learned in school. Teresa, I want to come to you with kind of a different question. You are still in your same job 10 years later. Is this a unicorn job? Was it just everything you ever wanted from the beginning? Or were you able to turn it into the job that you wanted? So spill your secrets. It's funny you asked that. I was thinking about that while Stephanie and Ellie were talking. And I think you all know at various times I've thought about moving and taken steps towards moving. I think that I very much lucked out. Stephanie and I actually interviewed for the same hospitalist. They were hiring several people and I interviewed at the same place and then also interviewed where I am now and decided I didn't want to do the hospitalist route. And I happened to luck out in that I hired at a moderately sized private multi-specialty practice that was big enough to have a lot of support and understand how to frequently hire new providers, had set up a way to onboard people, gradually knew that we needed time, knew that the first six months minimal were going to be head the phone and calling them if I had a question or core texting them if I had a question. It was very collegial and very much about talking with each other, working things through. And I, I knew pretty early on that I loved internal medicine. I really like not knowing what I'm going to see every day, seeing all sorts of different things. And I periodically thought, I think I would be really lose interest if I was in a specialty that was maybe not as complex. So I do really like internal medicine. I realized that pretty early on. So that kept me there. And then the, the fact that they set everything up to really support and help you grow. Halfway through the past 10 years, our practice was bought by a national nonprofit hospital slash healthcare corporation. So there's been quite a few changes, but what hasn't changed is the people I work with locally and the, and the relationships. And then I think the other major things that have helped, one was that I was within the first few months of starting offered to start participating with the practice on the business side or administration management side in terms of the medical advisory committee. And as the practice has grown, our role as a nurse practitioner has grown. So between when I started and now, we now have P um, MPs who are PCPs in Massachusetts who have their own panel. We have a tiered, um, a tiered setup 
where we have new grad NPs and PAs who are just starting out and need to get their feet under them. And then we have senior APs and MPs who do like preoperative consults and do hospital follow-up and, and do some of the paperwork management from their panels. And so it's not that the role itself has remained static. It has grown over time. And I think that helped. And also my role in terms of administration and management has grown. I've also had the chance to start getting involved with training in terms of our EMR support system and working with individual new hires, helping them get through the hard part of learning the system while they also learn their medicine and have helped also with uh, rolling out for like a whole system, a new EMR. And so that's helped me stay engaged because I've learned other things about how a practice is managed and things you have to think about behind the scenes and the other parts of being in practice clinically that are not the actual medicine, which is how to not want to smash your computer at the end of the day and how to (laughs) bill correctly and what it means to do risk adjustment factors and what that means for your practice. And I think that's really useful. And we might come up a little bit later when some of the questions that came in, I definitely think that's really useful and it's helped keep me engaged, but I also just love internal medicine and not insignificantly, we are paid very well for the area. It would be hard for me to move. And this is one of the things that kept me from moving. It'd be hard for me to move and find the same type of hours and same type of clinical support and not take a pay cut. So that's been a role straight up. That's awesome. And, you know, I think it's safe to say that this job that you're in the role has really evolved with you, kind of, you know, not only was it a great place to start where it was supportive and you had the resources you need to be successful, but, you know, there are all sorts of reasons that people leave. Part of it is boredom. Part of it is, you know, a disconnect between the clinical side and the admin side. And it it sounds like you've really had the opportunity to have a hand in your experience as time has gone on. And I think that's really valuable and not everyone has that opportunity uh, but also not everyone takes advantage when that opportunity is there or recognizes when that opportunity is there you know a lot of people can just see oh well I'm you know I'm a clinical provider I have no say in the admin side of things but sometimes it just have to ask for a seat at the table and and you can have the potential to be involved with that so extra plug to all of you new NPs out there you want to have at least a little bit of time of a seat at the table to understand what goes into the decisions that are being made. Because if you don't, then the frustration is even more. You don't understand why why things are done the way they are. And I think it's really useful to have that background, even if it's just for a little while. Yeah, totally. So the next thing I want to talk about is something that comes up a lot, something I think about a lot, or at least I've thought about a lot in the past five years or so and get questions about a lot. And that's the concept of work-life balance. Like, does it exist? What does that mean to you? How has that evolved over time and thoughts about that concept? So I know that's probably going to look different for each of us. Uh, and, and you're welcome to kind of mention any personal life factors. Like for me, being a parent is a huge factor in that. So certainly if there's anything like that at play for you, feel free to share. So whoever wants to kick us off and share about your experience with work-life balance? I'll go first, since I unmuted first. Um, My first couple years, I was super paranoid and scared about paying off my student loans. So I worked a ton and I didn't take much time off and it didn't help that our pay was entirely RVU based. And then after two years, I said, holy moly, I'm going to burn out really fast if I keep doing this. And then I kind of did a 180 and I basically take almost as much time off as they allow. So up to like counting down the days and I spread it out, but I I use all my time. I use my CME time and I have basically, and you know, I I don't have children. So that's part of it, but I basically said, you know what? I work to live. I don't live to work. And so I made it a priority and I was still able to do my loans. I just had to like actually sit down and plan things out, but I take what I have in terms of time off and I use every bit of it. I'm so glad to hear that. And I think that's at least that gets my vote in terms of advice for new people starting to avoid burning out and to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Like take take your time off, go on a vacation or a staycation or something, find some opportunity to completely switch off because um, 
because so many people don't do it. And not that it's all our responsibility to be in an environment where we're not burning out. But when you have something that you have control over, you know, I definitely think that it's important. Yeah, Teresa, I also want to say I want to jump in really fast and say that seeing your photos of you traveling helps me from burning out. So you just keep doing 100 (laughs) percent. Totally agree. This might be sort of a hot take. So I'm a mom of two little ones. They're going to be two and four this month. Um, I feel like I reached the point last year and probably like mid pandemic, right, where I just got tired of that question. Like, that question just presupposes that work and life are separate and work is just part of our life. So where you want to draw that boundary is really important. And so that, especially with your employer, right? And this, this is, this goes beyond like being a healthcare provider, where we know that we're always going to be asked to do more and more. This is just being a worker in general, like here in the United States, we have to just be able to, to draw those boundaries around when are we going to be available? When are we not going to be available? Um, And that honestly, that actually goes with patients too. And a big part of what I tell my office is how do we set these boundaries with patients? You know, I can't sometimes call somebody back right away if I have a really busy schedule, but some folks are just really accustomed to getting a phone call, getting me on the phone immediately. And that's not reasonable. So it's really just drawing healthy boundaries around who gets access to your space. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful perspective. I think, you know, the the conversation of boundaries has been especially apropos in in the past year. So Steph, I'm wondering, what do your boundaries look like when you are not working? Like, is it like time boundaries? Is it contact boundaries? Are you available to your employer outside of work? What does that look like for you? Right. So in general, so I don't have work email access. I don't have EMR access at home and I make it a point to not do any charting at home. So if there's something that can be put off till the next day, then I'll catch up while I'm at work. I also take a lunch. Like that's something that it's hard to do as an NP, right? You're constantly being asked to do all this stuff, but no, you have to like physically get out of the office, get outside, go for a walk. <laughs> These sort of things are are super important just for burnout, right? Yeah, totally. I think setting our personal non-negotiables is something that we deserve and that we're worthy of. And it can be really hard for new people, especially if you are the type of person who is a people pleaser or a perfectionist, you know, to feel like you have to eliminate all your boundaries because you want your new employer to like you or whatever that looks like that. It's really easy to... Yeah. Don't seem to have boundaries. Sorry, I'm going to put that plug in too. When you work with people, you're like... Why are you writing me an email at one o'clock in the morning? <laughs> yeah. What are what are your thoughts about boundaries and work-life balance, Ellie? Um, I have found that it's been a lot easier to, with my current job, to manage. I don't need an eight-hour day where I am only working eight hours. I have a lot of flexibility in my day because I'm doing home visits. It's on my schedule. So I get done what I get done and I can... Um, I think staff, it's great that you don't bring anything home. I like to get done by 4.30 and then I'm enjoying my daylight time. And then in the evening, I might do charting, but my phone is off. My weekends are free and props to you, Teresa, for going into supervising because that has been the big thing when I've looked at opportunities to manage or supervise or anything. And I just don't see realistic expectations for people who are supervisors. They're really expected to be so available so much more than what I'm willing to be available. So that has been a big, when I've been looking at jobs or I'm looking at moving up, especially at that place where I was in the Bronx for five years, when I looked at positions that were available within that company, for me to be more supervisor, I just saw that it was unreasonable. And the lives that I saw of the supervisors was not something I could see myself doing, especially because I'm looking at having a family. So that is a balance that I think I've personally made that I'm staying just clinical work for not just clinical work, clinical work is very important. But I have found jobs where it has been more of my timeline, more of my control. And I have not chosen to go into management just because I don't see that the expectations being reasonable. Yeah, I would kick in and add that what I've done basically is 
<laughs> they offered me actually much more specifically a supervisory role. And I said, no, thank you. <laughs> but the things I do, it does require some extra time, but it's scheduled meetings or it's scheduled blocks of like two weeks when I'm doing an EMR upgrade and I'm at a different office. Important to always ask because I do see the same thing with our practice. The chief of medicine, the assistant chief of medicine, who's a PA, they are on all the time. And I do have EMR at home. I do some, well, I have to because we do telehealth at home, but I I resisted for about five years. And I think it's good as a new grad to not have it at home because it's a slippery slope. And then once you are able to manage your day, if you do then want to have it at home, but you have a better sense of how to set your boundaries of, you know, this is a day where realistically, I'm going to go home and have a glass of wine and finish my charting versus every night, I'm so far behind that I have to go home and do it all in the evening. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And Ellie touched on this earlier, and you too, Teresa, about, you know, management opportunities and supervisory opportunities. And and so I'm curious what, right now, 10 years in, what do your professional goals look like? What are you moving towards, if anything? I'll just share personally that, you know, before my clinical sabbatical, I was in a period of my life where I was kind of in the status quo kind of stage, like very happy to go to work, do my job and come home. Uh, And I think part of that is because having three little kids takes up so much of my brain space and so much of my energy that I didn't really have uh, much of an aspiration to, to do more or be more involved at work. But I think it's good to show kind of how your goals change with time and with different seasons of life. So I'd love to know if each of you has a professional goal that you're working towards at this point. This is Ellie. I'm in a psych nurse practitioner program right now. So I'm doing part-time school as well. And part of the balance I looked at when I was looking at either supervisor positions or maybe moving up was, well, do I really want to spend this time and energy benefiting a company that could turn around and just be bought by somebody else and I could lose my job? Or, lose, or do I want to take the time and invest in something where I see the psych nurse practitioners in my life and they have better hours, more money, and aren't on call. So I look at their lives and their quality of life. I'm like, that's something I could see myself moving into. So an, and the other thing is I still have the GI benefits from being in the uniform service. So that was money that's paying for my school. And I'm now working full-time and going to school part-time and chipping away at the credits and things like that I need to for that. So that was a choice I made that said, okay, am I professionally going to invest in this company and being a supervisor and going to management? Or am I really going to be investing in a different certificate and a different board certification eventually for my quality of life and for a future balance of my life? So that was a decision I'm making. Sometimes I question it, but who doesn't question some decisions once in a while when you're sitting taking finals? I don't know if you all have taken any exams, <laughs> studying for things, which is what I was doing right before this podcast. So I, there's moments where I'm like, was this wise? And then I looked at the psych NP jobs online I'm like, and I talked to my colleagues who are psych NPs. I think, you know, that's where I want to be in a couple of years. That's it. That's awesome. I'll jump in. I don't have any hard set goals right now. I'm in a situation where, so I live on the East Coast right now, but um, my parents are in their 70s and I'm their healthcare power of attorney and they live on the West Coast and my sister's job is not nearly as mobile or easily replaceable as mine is. So I'm in this kind of weird, kind of don't know for sure where I'm going to be in the next five to 10 years if anything happens with them. But I do know that I really love teaching and that except for this past year with the pandemic, I've had one to two students every year and I love doing that. And I've played around, I haven't taken any steps, but I've played around with getting, going back to school to get some education, (laughs) teaching training in. One of our classmates that I'm good friends with did something similar and I've played around with it. I haven't done anything concrete, but ultimately it would be amazing to help run an education program in a practice. That's not what I do right now, except for taking students. But hopefully, it will be a major part of my my job in the future. And we'll see about school. I don't know. I don't know if I can handle taking tests again. <laughs> I don't know. I could definitely see you moving into an educator role, you know, clinical or or even higher ed. I don't know if you've considered that, but I think that would 
suit you well. That's just my my perspective. Oh, you would be so great. I would love to have you as well. <laughs> I love the ego stroking, guys. <laughs> I mean, I'll go back to school if Teresa's my professor. Oh, absolutely. I would too. And I love seeing I love seeing people move and become educators because I see so many of my colleagues that I'm like, you're so good. You're so smart. You explain this so well. And Teresa, you were one of those people. And I'm like, please be the person that helps with the next generation of nurses, because I feel like you could absolutely do that. One of the most fun things I did last year, last fall, my NP student at the time, he amazing third career. He'd done multiple of the things in medicine and other fields, but he teaches EMTs. Because I'm going to be a teacher and I can't talk. He teaches EMTs and he invited me to do their class on uh, high altitude illnesses and some some of the wilderness medicine. And that was super awesome because I got to bring in some of my outside life. And it was just really, it did wet the bug for for teaching. But going back to school, man. Yeah, it's kind of nice when you haven't been in school for a while. (laughs) Yeah, but also it's amazing what you were saying about it not being static that the job by it not being static allows you to stay in the same job. Because I found that that job I left after five years, I left really because it was static. There was not going to be a place that I could move to. So it's great, Teresa, that you found in one position that you were able to find interesting things because you can still teach and you can kind of scratch that itch that you've got by moving around and doing what you like to do. Um, I was wondering with Steph, if she being in a specialty practice if it's scary to think about moving or if she's going to go into teaching because we need more people that are teaching specialties too. Yeah. So I love my specialty. I actually continue to grow in it and particularly in the professional organization within pulmonology and sleep medicine, it actually has a pretty robust nurse research group. I've actually been moving a little bit more into research specifically started with COVID So participating in big clinical trials, hooking up with the research that's been going on um, within my organization, and then getting community partnerships on board so that we can enroll folks who would otherwise be sort of not considered, right? Like, particularly like community health organizations, the federally qualified health organizations within our community. So specifically, there's been three protocols that I've been working on, uh, including the remdesivir and the Lilly monoclonal antibody studies. So that's been really cool, like just to set up sort of a COVID infusion center and with the goal of keeping folks outside of the hospital, right? Um, So that's been something new this year and totally love it. Um, Definitely have run into issues because it hasn't existed before. So not just like the NP working, um, leading this, but also organizations coming together just to help the community. So that's been really awesome. That's cool stuff. I think if I had to imagine what you would be working towards or or doing professionally, I think that suits you quite well. So that sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah, I also have that same struggle, like, do I want to go back and get my PhD? And I go back and forth because I feel like that requires so much reflection, like that there's so much work, so much sacrifice that will go into that whole thing, particularly because I have a family too, and it's going to impact all of us if we um, say have to move somewhere for a few years. But I don't know, I haven't quite gotten to that point yet. I think there's so much that we could do as an NP with a master's that you don't necessarily need a PhD for, including teaching. I mean, I have a few students too. um, And I certainly don't want to do 100% academic work 100% of the time. So where I'm at right now is good. And also like Teresa and Ellie, I was going to say Terry and Ellie. (laughs) Um, I've been looking at ways to grow outside of my organization. California is weird. It's still kind of a restricted practice state. Although shout out to Representative Jim Wood for passing the legislation to allow that discussion about full practice. We don't really have a lot of opportunities actually even in management roles. It's it's still kind of a unique place and I've worked in a lot of other states where we don't have those restrictions. But I've joined a couple of nonprofit boards for the county uh, where I'm at. One of them is a free clinic. So there's a Jewish community free clinic. 100% is free. And it's cool to be on the board of that as a healthcare provider. And then recently, I've joined the um, housing board for affordable housing, which is such a huge 
issue out here, especially after the fires and all that. So I've been learning a lot through those positions as well. That's great. And I think you bring up a good point, Steph, about there are so many things that we can do as NPs with master's degrees. You know, the interesting thing is that 10 years ago, the DNP was like very, very, very in its infancy. And I tell the story that at our school, there was like the DNP was not an option, not only because they didn't have the program, but the leadership in our program was very much anti-DNP. And they said, if you want to have a doctoral degree, you had to get a PhD, which is funny because a few years later, after a change in leadership, they then started a DNP program. But yeah, so there are so many more NPs who are graduating right off the bat with DNPs now because it's more common. But we as, you know, the the previous generation of NPs, I guess you could say, it wasn't as much of an opportunity for us. And we have learned to leverage the experience and the knowledge that we already had to still have these these opportunities for advancement, even without the doctoral level degree. And, and sure, there are plenty of us going back for DNP, us meaning, you know, people of our NP generation, but I'm not sure it's as common because we've been able to kind of craft the opportunities without it. I have a question for Steph and Teresa, actually, about when they choose when they choose to go into something new within the same organization. So deciding to do research for Steph, which I think is, first of all, fits you so well. And I'm so happy nurse practitioners are getting involved in that kind of research. But when you're looking at, at that opportunity, what are the things that you're balancing in that thought process to decide to say yes? I'll go first. So the one I mentioned before, when I was offered some some of a more formally a management position, it was really because I did not want to take away from my clinical time. And then when I was offered these other things I do now, which is the EMR training, it's because it is not every single week I have a block of time that I have to do it. It's kind of scheduled out. And they asked me, hey, are you, can you do it for these this new provider? Or can you do this one week rollout for the cardiology group? They're getting our EMR system. And so it's a little bit more like, how do you feel about doing this part again? So I have a little bit more control over the time commitment. And also, it's who I'm going to be working with. I had the luxury of being in a practice that I know most of the people or I've been around most of the people long enough to know who I really would not necessarily. There's there's this interesting dichotomy between the people I know who don't work well with MPs and PAs and the ones who do. And I think that's whole generational discussion and divide and educational kind of topic that could be ours. But I've been there long enough to know this is someone that it's going to be a lot of butting heads and it's we're not going to necessarily be successful. Or, hey, this is someone who's really collegial and we'll both bring a lot to it and the sum of the parts will be better than all of them alone. So for me, that was really just 100% how do you balance clinical time and productivity with research time. And that was a big discussion I had to have with my office manager because they really like didn't want to give me up in a sense, you know, as just the productive time. So that was a big discussion that we had before I was, I hate saying like allowed, but you know, like before I was able to move over and devote some time to do specifically research, which was taking away from clinical time, of course. And then we're actually trying to figure out how I could do telehealth over at the research site as well, just to get more visits in. So again, talking about boundaries, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that when you have some seniority in your practice, like when they know you and you've worked there for some bit of time and and not only do they know who you are as a person, but they can, you know, pull your numbers and they know how much, you know, monetary value you bring to a practice, then those conversations I think become a little bit easier to have because it can be a conversation as opposed to a negotiation. I mean, it's a negotiation, of course, but becomes more of a conversation because if you sit in a seat in this practice, then I think that conversation is easier as opposed to, you know, negotiating a position with someplace new. I have one more thing quickly to add that I just remembered. I think it's important to know your own strengths and weaknesses. And by that, I mean, I recently, um, I've been doing our fever clinic, which we have for like people who potentially have COVID or have COVID and are having acute symptoms. And I was asked if I was able to cover for a month because we have some providers leaving. And I had to sit there and think about it and really ask myself, how do I feel clinically? Because I would be the only provider there. Whereas when I had done it before, there were three to four of us and one was an MD. 
And so I did have to say, you know, how do I feel personally about my clinical skills, EKGs, et cetera, for patients who can be quite sick and you're not always just sending them out by ambulance. And so you have to be honest with yourself and really check in with yourself and not be, I think it's the Dunning-Kruger effect where you, you know, so little, you don't know what you know, or you know, just enough to not know what you don't know. So you really, I think being honest with yourself about where you are clinically is important as well. Yeah. And I think that's, that's like a clinical maturity that comes with time and not necessarily with age, because I will say that we are a young, we are a young group. We've all been in practice for 10 years and none of us is yet 40 years old. Okay. So I think that kind of proves that we, (laughs) I'm not going to say who's going to be 40 soon because it's one of us, (laughs) but I'm not going to, I'm not going to single that one person out. (laughs) But my point is, you know, there's discussion about how many years you should work before you become an NP. And, you know, with us, we were a young group of NP students. We had a previous career. We weren't necessarily in that group of, oh, you have to be a nurse for 10 years before going back to school. So I think that there is a level of clinical maturity that can come with time that helps you sort through that decision-making process because you're able to consider all sides of your situation in order to put yourself in a thriving professional situation. Hey friend, this episode is brought to you by my membership community, the NP Society. If you are ready to become the NP you always wanted to be, then the NP Society is the place for you. This is a community that is designed for nurse practitioners and students to thrive beyond the clinical setting. This is a safe space for you. Membership includes access to our off Facebook chat community, as well as weekly virtual events that include guest expert masterclasses, social events, self-care classes, and clinical roundtable discussions. This is the first organization that puts the professional, that's you, at the center, and I cannot wait to meet you inside. To choose your membership level, head to thenpsociety.com or click the link in the show notes. Again, that's thenpsociety.com, and I hope to see you on the inside. So I want to be respectful of everyone's time. So I know that we're probably going to wrap up soon, but a question that I wanted to get to, because I'm all about vulnerability and talking about difficult stuff, I want to know what you are struggling with right now, uh, whether that's personally, professionally, intersection of both, uh, and if you'd be willing to kind of share that so that we can kind of hear what that what that looks like for you right now. I'll jump in first. I find that I'm getting really emotionally burnt out this year, very emotionally burnt out. And I actually, I think for the first time in my career have been having work-related nightmares (laughs) pretty consistently for about a month and a half. I don't feel that way necessarily at work, but I've noticed that I have a hard time. I have sympathy for my patients still, but I'm having a harder time having the empathy that I need and feeling because you know, if you had a scale of one to 10 for anxiety and just general angst that people come into the office with, usually people come in with a varying level of zero to 10. And definitely in the past four or five months, everyone's been up around an eight to a 12. And all of our colleagues are because everyone is struggling with all the emotional and financial and work related things with the pandemic. And it's really emotionally burnt me out a lot to the point where I have to kind of check in with myself every couple of days saying, am I really Am I just doing the motions for a lot of these or am I really putting in what I used to put in? And, I, and I've never had to do that before. And I, I had one, I'm thinking of one visit in particular where afterwards I just felt so bad about it for days. And it wasn't a clinical thing. Clinically, we did, I did everything I need to, but I, I know I didn't, I didn't act like the, the provider that I normally am. And I, and I really regretted it. And so it really made me kind of step back and say, I need to do some work on this emotional stuff that's built up in the past year. So, yeah. And what does that look like for you, Teresa? Like, do you know what that work is? Well, right now it's taking horseback riding lessons. <laughs> it's literally just taking, I, I've been wanting to do it for years and it's a different mental space. And so it's like one hour a week of just 
I can't not focus because there's a 3000 pound animal under me that could potentially knock me off and kill me. Beyond that, you know, we'll see how that goes. I just started, but it's, it's a good mental break. And so far, it seemed to help. Also, just realizing, I think, made me a lot more conscious of what, how I was feeling and just checking in a, a lot more t- with myself. But um, mental breaks, things, not my normal routine that are different enough to kind of kick me out of the work and just pandemic grind. Thank you for sharing. Amanda, this year has been intense. Um, Yeah, I don't even know where to start. I mean, so again, Northern California, right? We've had collective trauma year after year with these wildfires. And then we add COVID on top of that. And then, of course, you know, me for me personally, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. So for those of you who don't know me, I am Mexican. I am melanated, so I don't pass as white. And I've really, this year, I've had a chance to reflect on how much that has affected me both personally and professionally throughout my life. Specifically, I guess, as it pertains to what we're talking about here as a new grad, I mean, this there has been a collective shift, right? People know that they can't talk to you in a way that maybe they have before. And that's something that's happened in the last 10 years since we've graduated, right? So when I first got out of school, I was really young. I mean, I was, I think, the youngest in our class, right? I was like 23, 24 working as a nurse practitioner. And I'm pretty petite. I would like walk in. I had, I, I literally wore a white coat just to try to like lend myself like just my my physicality some sort of um professionalism I guess but I would get a lot of comments like from patients about you know oh are you old enough to do this or even like racist comments like oblossing glace like when I walk into an exam room so really having to deal with that I'm just kind of thinking back like I kind of normalized it I guess but I just had to get through it and looking back now 10 years later, like realizing that wasn't okay, like that was traumatic, right? Um, and, and that actually includes some issues with one of my jobs. So I guess this was my second job. And there's, I can't actually talk about it that much. But what I do want to tell young nurse practitioners out there is that you can break a contract, you can get out of a contract if it's a toxic workplace. So don't stay just because like you signed a contract for and this is actually pretty common, right? Like you have, excuse me, you have three years, if you get a signing bonus or relocation package that if you leave before then, you know, they'll say like, Oh, you have to pay that back. But there's a way that you can get out of it. And um, for me, it involved actually getting a good employment attorney. And I mean, there's a way so don't feel stuck in a toxic job. Yeah, this year really has brought up a lot of that stuff for me. Um, like I said, it has been, I think, a collective shift. And now as a mother, I'm really um, aware of the sort of patterns that I don't want to see repeated in my daughters, my children, and how do I heal that? So that I'm kind of taking on as my responsibility. Um, started going to therapy, started working through some things, and also actually joined some groups where we explore sort of traditional healing methods, which I've been really excited about. So that's herbalism and just learning about your ancestral tradition. And it's actually really helped me a lot with patient care, which has been really awesome. So learning to tend to myself right away and not wait until I'm fully burnt out, right? Not wait until I like want to pass out in clinic, but recognizing those early signs and tending to yourself right away. So those are all just pieces of advice that I would recommend that young starting out fresh NPs really take to heart. Thank you for sharing, Steph. Um, Yeah. Wow, Steph, thank you for sharing that. And I think my year was kind of, I'm in a position where we do a lot of home management for older adults and a lot of the choices that were made around home management for older adults in the New York City area when COVID hit was basically how to manage COVID, which is a disease we really didn't know what to do or how to do anything for it. I mean, we were intubating people that didn't need to be intubated in March, right? I mean, that whole, what we've learned about how to manage COVID has been really a lot. And my practice was managing a lot of people in the home. And you know, we had a lot of people who had or, uh, 99-year-olds that survived. Um, I had people who, 
that had almost no symptoms. Then I had people, a lot of my patients, unfortunately, pass away. So I had um, more than 10% of my panel passed away. And most of my patients, we have like 240 patients per person so that uh, you get to know their families. And I think something I've been struggling with the most just recently has been trying to communicate to management or other the corporate system that our lives have not really returned to normal yet. That COVID is still around. I still have patients that I'm managing day to day that have it. Uh, my community has been devastated. So I have families I worked with where the whole, even though one of the patients is the, my actual patient, the daughter caretaker is the one that passed away. And how are we managing the 80-year-old's care now that her health proxy is the one that's gone? Um, we have a huge primary care doctor in our neighborhood that both of his parents just this past week just died of COVID. So, and his patients are my patients. So I'm taking over, I'm assisting with the primary care. And I think that communicating that to my management and saying, I know you all are looking at the next year thinking we're going to get back to normal. We're not at normal yet though. We're still not there. And I, I really like everyone else waiting for the day when we get back to normal, but this disease is still affecting those of us that are in care, doing care day to day. And I, I feel like a lot of people are making movements or making plans where the cart is before the horse and they're saying, we've, Oh, we're fine. Everything has moved on. And you're saying, but my day to day, I'm still seeing people with this trauma and I'm still seeing people suffering and I'm still seeing people get it. I mean, these are some people that we've managed to keep safe for the past year and they just got a positive test this past week. It's just so devastating to see that. And, but now I just feel so much ready, more ready to manage that than I was before. Um, so hopefully, you know, the tools we have now are at least managing them better, but trying to communicate that to people who've actually been, you know, I've been seeing patients this whole time. And then there's people who've been in the house looking at numbers and looking at how many patients I've seen and my uh, productivity and things like that and trying to communicate with them that the world has changed. I know you haven't exited your house in a year, but we're still dealing with this. So I think that that's been my biggest professional struggle is managing that. Yeah. I mean, you, you said this quickly uh, during your, your response, but 10% of your panel passed away from COVID yeah. this past year. Yeah, that was, I work in the area around in Elmhurst, Elmhurst Hospital, which is that one that went on the news. That was the first one that was overwhelmed. We had COVID. Now we know it was in February that, and we were, we were even talking about how our patients were like, this weird pneumonia. We're like, what's happening? Why? And then we realized what kind of what had happened. And now we're all, and it's devastating the communities, these communities, not only that I live in, but also that are vulnerable. My patients are already vulnerable and it's, it's just very hard to see it happening. And yeah, and that's 10, beyond 10%. The last check was not, it was beyond 10%, but we definitely had more patients that had it. Are you able to compartmentalize that personally? Like I've never had 10% of my patients pass away, like in the past 10 years, like I haven't experienced that type of volume of, of death that I'm like personally close to. I feel like I would, I would really struggle with that. And has that been difficult for you, like outside of work? I think our community was so devastated that everybody has been really there for each other in a way. And I'm, it's 10% of a patient group that I know and I'm part of their, I almost feel like I'm part of their families just because we have such small patient panels. So that's been, that I think has been helpful is allowing myself to mourn with my patients too. I mean, some of these were yeah. patients I have for two years and um, I'd known their kids and their, and, and kind of having the mourning, the ability to mourn with them because I live in the area too. So that's, that's its own kind of helpfulness in processing that. But there's probably a lot that I haven't even realized because you have to move so fast sometimes. But I'm working with a therapist right now and everything to go through it. And I think reaching out and getting help when you need it is so key to to just be able from a professional to professional and knowing that you can reach out or friends. I know I'm calling people all the time just to check in and see how they're doing. 
uh, and then also just having a really good support structure. Yeah, thank you for sharing. So uh, as as we wrap up, I want to end on an optimistic note. Um, so I'd love if we could each share uh, a bit of advice to the younger or the 10 year ago version of of ourselves or of an up and coming new grad NP. Okay, so I'll start. <laughs> I'll start. And, you know, I think that my, um, my bit of advice is kind of a culmination of, of what we've talked about here um, throughout the past bit of time. And that's really to learn to listen to yourself and, and what you want and need out of life, out of your relationships, and out of your jobs, uh, and to really lean into self-trust. I feel like we, or at least 10-year-ago version of me, relied on a lot of other people for validating my choices. And the version of me now is much better at listening to myself and allowing my decisions to come from uh, inside as opposed to outside validating people. So that is my my bit of advice for previous me and for up and coming or junior new grads. Uh, so I, I guess mine is maybe a little bit more straightforward, but two things. One is the first year out is going to be exhausting and it will be like being your first year in grad school again, but it does get better. You'll always be learning, but that first year is particularly steep um, and it's okay and you will be mentally exhausted. And then the other thing I would say is that understand your RVUs, your billing, and how your salary or pay works. Um, I know a lot of places it's a salary and then a productivity bonus, but I was on productivity alone and it took me a few years to realize that I was consistently undercoding my visits and undercoding my skill and what I brought to the visit. And I think that's important for realizing your own own worth as an employee, understanding currently we have this healthcare system, however great or bad, personally, I feel quite bad, it is set up to be. And it also will help you long term in your career when you change jobs and you want to show this is the, the value I bring to your to this practice. If you are doing that all correctly, it captures your actual clinical work. So it's not so much just as a billing platform, but capture the clinical work that you do and understand how and why you're doing that um, instead of just typing in a code into the the visit and then signing your chart. Yes, that is that is super valuable. Agree, 100%. What I would recommend kind of goes along with what you were saying earlier, Amanda, and that's just trusting your intuition. So this isn't just professionally, but also clinically you will see somebody who you know looks sick, right? And there may not be other signs, but um, just keep following that intuition and listen to yourself. Also, I guess taking care of yourself so that you don't start to depersonalize. And that's really one of the signs of burnout, right? That you just start to see patient after patient after patient and you forget that they are um, like their own individual. Um, So easy to do, especially when you're overwhelmed, but try to learn techniques to center yourself in practice. Stephanie, I was just thinking of your recommendations for younger self of saying that a workplace environment is not okay and that you can get out of a contract. I wish you could have reached back to me 10 years ago. Maybe I would have even looked for an employment lawyer at the time, but knowing that something doesn't feel right, I think is the right position. I mean, I remember when I took a job that was six I thought it was going to be one thing. It turned out being something very different and I only stayed six months. I was like, am I a quitter? Is that a part? Am I quitting? Am I a quitter? Am I letting myself down? Is this some, am I letting something go that would somehow somehow grow into something bigger? But I just felt, you know, no, there's other opportunities there. And then the younger version of me and something I do for myself was actually always takes advice from one of our professors, Jerry Morocco. I don't know if you remember her ever saying, as soon as you get a new job, update your resume and just get it out there because people just come along 
with options sometimes. And even if you don't follow that option, you have a negotiation power that you can bring to your current employer to be able to negotiate something better or something different, or be able to say, I am interested in say research or getting into management and this position has that, what can you give me? And I think that there's a lot of power in making sure that your stuff is all kind of prepared for when those opportunities come along so that you can jump on them or leverage them in whatever opportunity you end up getting. Yeah, totally. I love that. Yep. Cherry always said, update your resume as soon as you get a new job. And also you don't have a job until you have a letter with a start date and a salary amount. So that is like, I remember that like until there's a written start date and a written offer, you don't have a job. So don't, don't make any decisions before that exists. So I would add, and until you have a license in the state where that offer is. Oh, yes. I've had so many on these committee meetings and they're like, oh, yeah, so-and-so was supposed to start, but it's going to be six months because they haven't the the board is taking their time. So license too, especially if you're moving, that can take a long time. Yes, especially if you're moving to New York, speaking from experience or trying to get licensed in California, tried to do that for telehealth. Man, so, well, ladies, this has been fun. I wish we could do this all day and maybe we will we're just going to stop hitting record and we're going to catch up a little bit (laughs) a little bit more informally so thank you for your time thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this episode i'd love if you would leave a rating or review or tag me on instagram let me know that you're listening so that i know to do more of these types of episodes if you like them so until next time well that does it for today Thank you so much for tuning in and making it all the way to the end. If you found today's episode helpful, would you take a minute and give me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts? It will truly help other nurses find this show and know that it's worth listening to. For more information about this episode, as well as a place to submit your questions or suggestions for future episodes or guests, head to nursebecoming.com. I cannot wait to connect with you again soon. And until next time, remember, I am always rooting for you.